We are going to be reading, start reading from John chapter 18, verse 12. And we, as a reminder, we are in the chronological life of Jesus. Luke, the Gospel of Luke is our template for this because Luke is the only one of the Gospels that actually says that it was arranged in chronological order. And so that's our template, but then we fill in with the other Gospels because Luke, of course, doesn't say everything and then we have to piece it together. So this is, we just finished up where Jesus was arrested and in fact there's a portion in Mark where it says a young man was, was uh, uh, following behind and they grabbed him by his cloak and he ran away naked. That young man was actually John Mark, the one who wrote the Gospel according to Mark. He wasn't one of the disciples of the apostles, but he often tagged along. He was a younger man, probably in his teens at the time. And, uh, and remember, we had seen this before in the Gospel according to John, that when authors wrote themselves into the Gospels, they referred to them as themselves in the, in the Gospels. And that's why John Mark referred to himself as that young man. But we're going to start reading now in John chapter 18, verse 12. So the Roman cohort and the commander and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him and led him to Annas first, for he was father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. Now Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it was expedient for one man to die on behalf of the people. So remember, there were four to six hundred people, four to six hundred soldiers in a Roman cohort plus you had the temple guard, plus a few other people, a few of the slaves were there that that were made reference to. There was one Malchus who had his ear cut off. There was another slave, because that slave was one of the people that will call Peter out as being one of the disciples of Jesus. But there were 500, 600 people that had arrested Jesus. They brought him first to Annas. So who is Annas? Annas is the former high priest he wasn't the high priest at this time. So he was the former high priest. So Annas was, was the high priest at an earlier time. Let me just, just find where that is. It's, uh, the date of his high priesthood was 7 to 14 AD. All right? But he still had enormous control. He was deposed from his office by Governor Valerius Gratus. He was governor at the time, and he deposed him. He didn't like him, and he had his son put in his place as high priest. And, uh, so, but the Jews still looked to Annas because they never deposed him from being high priest. It was the Romans that did. Annas was the Annas of, uh, uh, it was called the Bazaar of the Sons of Annas. They controlled the temple compound, the money changing, the buying and selling of sacrifices and, and, and what would go on there. Jesus overturned the tables on them twice. Once in his first Passover of his first Passover of his ministry, and once in the last Passover of his ministry, he overturned the tables on them twice. So Annas had a personal grudge against Jesus because he had upset his business. Annas was followed by his four sons as high priests, and then he was followed by his son-in-law Caiaphas. That's who's high priest at this time during the trial of Jesus. Caiaphas was, was a high priest. Uh, um, from, uh, we'll get, I'll tell you the dates in a little bit, but I think it's, 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 it's from about 25 to about 35 A.D. And this is 30 A.D. This is actually the date on this. This particular date is April 7th, 
30 AD. And you say, well, I thought Jesus was 33 when he died. Actually, that is tradition. That is, that is not, not really what it is. Most scholars will tell you he was born 5 to 7 BC. And so Jesus was 35 to 37 years old at this time. And uh, uh, it was 30 AD, and it was the, the uh, 15th of Nisan, their month, Nisan, but it would be in our reckoning, April 7th, 30th, 30 AD. And so they bring him before Annas. He was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. He still had a lot of power. His, so Caiaphas was the son-in-law who was high priest. Annas was the former high priest. And in verse 19, so we're going to skip a portion, then it goes down in verse 19 and describes what happens in this meeting with Annas. It says, Then the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and about his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. And I spoke nothing in secret. Why do you question me? Question those who have heard what I spoke with them. They know what I said. And when he said this, one of the officers standing nearby struck Jesus saying, Is that the way you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If I have spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. But if rightly, why do you strike me? So Annas sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The, the soldier, the, the, the uh, temple guard, says, hits Jesus and says, Is that the way you speak to the high priest? Remember, Annas was not the official high priest at the time, but he was still acknowledged in the high priesthood by the Jews, even though officially he had been deposed and it was Caiaphas. And that's why very often you hear one or the other referred to as high priest during this, this uh, ministry time of Jesus. There are three phases to the religious trial. Jesus is going to go through a religious trial and then a civil trial. This is the religious trial and there's three phases to it. The first phase he's brought before Annas and Annas is trying to find, to find a charge. There is no religious charge, so he's trying to find it. They have arrested Jesus without a religious charge. They are going to try to find him guilty of threatening to desecrate the temple. And the reason they want to find him guilty of that is because that very year they had lost the right to capital to administering capital punishment. So their right had been, been taken away by Pilate, who was governor of the city. They can no longer uh, administer capital punishment, except in one case. And that's in the case if somebody tried to desecrate their temple. So they're trying to find Jesus guilty of that, of attempting to desecrate their temple so that they themselves can put him to death. What they're ultimately going to find him guilty of is blasphemy, and that is going to be their charge, but they can't administer capital punishment, even though blasphemy, one can get capital punishment by the Jews, they're not allowed to administer it as of that year. So they're going to have to appeal to Pilate, the governor of the city, to have Jesus killed. And that, that's, that's what's going on here. Last time, I brought you through a list of over 20 rules, Mishnaic rules, that they violated in the arrest and the trial of Jesus. I listed those for you. Now we're going to go through and identify each one of those violations. So what we have now is, is that we have this, this three stages going on. So Annas, the high priest, is, is, uh, bringing, is questioning Jesus. Now remember, this is already a violation because first, first the, the individual, the one who is on trial, gets to make a defense and then 
then, then the case is brought against him. It's the opposite of the way it's done in our Western world. But Annas here is trying to find a charge. And the first thing he does is he questions Jesus about his disciples in verse 19 and then about his teaching. He's trying to implicate also Jesus' disciples because after he deals with Jesus, he wants to go after the disciples too. And then he questions Jesus about his teaching. And Jesus is saying, you've got to have a charge here. You've, you've, there's lots of people who have heard me speak. Ask them. Bring forth the charge. Jesus is appealing to his Jewish civil rights. Bring forth the charge upon me. And for that, he's smacked in the face by this garden. He says, you're going to question me in this way? You're going to question the high priest in this way? And then Jesus says, if I've spoken wrongly, testify of the wrong. What did I say? Cite for me the rule that I have violated in saying you need to bring a charge against me. Very confused this night. The entire religious trial is confused because, remember, they never wanted to have him crucified on this night. They never wanted him killed. They wanted to wait until after the Passover. But Jesus forced their hand by identifying Judas as the culprit, as the, one who, as the traitor. And so Judas had to run to them and they had to do it this night. But they weren't ready for this. That's why they're so confused. So he sends, he sends them bound to Caiaphas. So Jesus now is bound, continues to be bound, and he's sent to Caiaphas. So we're going to start reading now in verse in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. So this is where the story picks up. Matthew 26, verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. So this is now the gathering of the Sanhedrin. This is the gathering of the Sanhedrin. Now, Annas has already broken one of the rules here. One of the rules that we had talked about is that, is that uh, uh, they couldn't have any trial before the morning offering. So this is now their Friday because it's after 6 p.m. Saturday. That's their Friday. We choose midnight as the beginning of our next day. Why we choose that, I don't know. But they chose 6 p.m. There's not one that's more right than the other. It's just different. So now they're into their Friday and it's after dark and they're not allowed to start a trial without having the morning sacrifices. So already Annas has broken one of the rules that we had talked about. And so now, now they're brought before the Sanhedrin. Now they're going to have a trial. But remember, the trial had to be, had to be done in this hall of judgment in the temple. That is the only place they could have it done. And, but this happens to be in the, in, in the house of Caiaphas. And, so, and, and, and we'll see that. And so let's skip on down to verse 59. So the Sanhedrin is gathered. Now remember, the Sanhedrin had 71 people, 70 scribes and Pharisees, and one high priest who was also a Sadducee, and Seventy Sadducees and Pharisees, part of the Pharisees were scribes, that constituted the seventy, and then there was a Sadducee who was the seventy-first. They needed to have twenty-three, so there were at least twenty-three of them here. We don't know how many, but at least twenty-three. That's what we know. And in a religious trial that, that, that went on, what had to happen is you had to have at least, if it was going to be a guilty verdict, at least you had to have a majority of two for it to be guilty. For it to be innocent, you only needed a majority of one. 
And so, in verse 50, 59 of Matthew chapter 26, Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on, two came forward. So these are the last two coming forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. I want you to make mental note of this. I am able to destroy. They're quoting Jesus as having said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. This is actually documented for us in John chapter 2, verse, verse, 11, verse 19. John chapter 2, verse 19. And here's actually what Jesus said. Jesus said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Jesus told them to destroy the temple. He said, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. They're quoting Jesus as saying, I am able to, to destroy the temple. Then in verse 62, the high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is this that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, and then he goes on. So Jesus doesn't have to say anything. They have to first bring the charge. <clears throat> That's what they're waiting for. So this is being done, not in the hall of judgment. So again, they're breaking their own Mishnaic laws. The very laws that they got upset that Jesus was breaking, they are breaking. They're going to break 22 of them actually. And so, so let, let's turn over to Mark. In Mark chapter 14, you get, you, you get a little bit different view from Mark's view. Uh, you get a little bit different view. And Mark is, is, is saying this after he's interviewed the disciples. This is later on that he's written this. In verse 53 of Mark 14:53, They led Jesus away to the high priest and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes gathered together. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus to put him to death. And they were not finding any. So they had already made up their minds. They wanted to put him to death. There was no charge yet. But they had already made up their mind trying to put him to death. For what? There's no charge. And that's what we had read in John. In John it says, remember it says, this was the Caiaphas who said that one man had to die for the nation so all don't have to die. Caiaphas had already made up his mind. And it says that in John... And, and uh, uh, this happened at the resurrection of Lazarus, which we already went through. And it says, as soon as he said that, then they sought to kill Jesus. In their mind, he, he wasn't speaking prophetically in their mind. And he was saying, we've got to kill this man. They had already made up their mind. Caiaphas was already set on this. They were just trying to find a charge upon which to do it. You see how backwards this trial is. So, so everything is, is, is going, on, go, going wrong for them. They had this secret trial going on. This is another secret trial. This is held in the house of the high priest. And, and that's in, in one of the portions that we skipped, which we'll get to next week. This is held in the house of the high priest. So they're breaking rule number five. Um, and so he tries to get, get Jesus incriminated here. And they bring forth now these two witnesses. Now look what it says in Mark. It says, in verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain a testimony. Again, violation of a rule. Remember, you couldn't have everyone against the individual. He had to have had at least one advocate on the council. If he didn't have at least one advocate, mistrial, over, he's gone. They violated another rule because they were all giving, the, the whole council was trying to obtain false testimony. 
Verse 56. For many were giving false testimony against him, but their testimony was not consistent. Remember, they had to have two witnesses. We discussed this last time. And their witness had to agree in every detail. Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. You see the controversy in the testimony. Matthew quotes one of the two witnesses. Mark quotes the other. The first witness that that Matthew, the one that, that, that Matthew quoted said, I am able to destroy. This witness says that Jesus said, I will destroy. It didn't agree. So that's why they couldn't use this witness. It didn't agree. It, and it says right here in verse 56, For many were giving false witness against him, but their testimony was not consistent. That's why they could not find him guilty of trying to destroy the temple. They couldn't even get the witnesses right. You say, why, why couldn't they do that? Because this thing was hurried. It was coming forth much faster than they had expected. It was rushed into this this night. Verse 59, not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. So Mark tells us it wasn't consistent. They couldn't use it. The high priest stood up and came forward and questioned Jesus saying, do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? So remember, one of the regulations is a man could not testify against himself because he might be suicidal, they said, or he might be trying to cover for another. So he has no, there's no call for him to have to do this. So he just keeps silent. So he's just following right along with the rules. There's this lack of organization. So, so um, Caiaphas, in leading this second trial, he's gathering, and, and we've already violated verse 6 because it's, it's, uh, it's held in a, in a uh, secret place. So then he goes on and he questions him and Jesus doesn't answer. He says, but he kept silent and didn't answer. Then it says, and again, the high priest questioned him saying, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? Let's turn back to Matthew and see how Matthew tells us. He says, Matthew gives us a little more specificity here. He says, but Jesus kept silent and the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of God. And then Jesus starts to answer. When the high priest says, I adjure you, that is tantamount to putting a person under oath and now he has to testify. So now they are breaking again their own rules in that he has to testify before they even have a charge. And so he he says to him, I adjure you, so that's putting him under oath, that you are to tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. So when he says this, he goes on and and, uh, um, it's getting out of control here, but there's something really revealing in in what Caiaphas does. When Caiaphas says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. So there's two things that Caiaphas knew. He knew who Jesus claimed to be, the Messiah, because he said, I adjure you to tell us, are you the Christ, which means the Messiah, the Son of God. So he knew what Jesus' claim was. That's why he's asking him, Did you re- are you really the Messiah? Number two, the other thing that he knows is that, that, uh, uh, that who the Messiah was supposed to be, the Son of God. He says, are you the Messiah, the Son of God? This is exactly what he's doing. 
he knows well from the scriptures that the Messiah was to be the Son of God. That's why he says to him, I adjure you, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Which shows that, that Caiaphas knew these very two things. That Jesus claimed to be the Messiah, and the Messiah was the Son of God. Whoever the Messiah was going to be, was going to be the Son of God. That he knew. Now Jesus has to answer because he's been put under this, this, this adjuring of the high priest. So Jesus said to him, you have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I say to you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And in, in Mark, he says it in verse 62, and Jesus said, I am. That is the great I am, but also I am. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? I am. You know, and, and so people who say that Jesus never said that he was the Messiah, or, it's not right. He said, I am. He said, are you the Messiah? I am. Well, what, what, what is That's affirmative, right? Are you the Messiah? I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Now, that's a quote. So he's quoting from Psalm 110, verse 1, where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make my enemies a footstool for your feet. When Jesus is saying, I am going to be at the right hand of the Father. This is huge. This is tantamount to showing equality with God, which the Scripture says, though he had equality with God, he did not count it. Though he was equal with God, he did not count it in his earthliness that equality, but he submitted himself to the Father. But here he's saying, I'll be sitting right at the right hand. We're co-reigning. This is, this is it. He's, he's claiming Godship. Then he says, he quotes from Daniel, where it says, when the Lord returns, he is go when the Lord comes, he is going to become come riding on the clouds, it says in Daniel. And these Pharisees, these Sadducees, this high priest, they well knew what Jesus was quoting. He was quoting from their own scriptures saying, I'll be sitting right there at the right hand of God. In Psalm 110 verse 1, he was talking about me. And Daniel was talking about me. Daniel was talking, Daniel was talking about me because, because uh, uh, I'm going to be the one riding in the clouds. And this is what he says. And coming in the clouds of heaven. I am go he says, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What does this testify? This testifies that even people in hell will see God coming, the return of Jesus Christ riding on the clouds. That even people in hell will see Jesus sitting at the right hand of His Father. Because He says to Caiaphas, you will see. You will see me sitting at the right hand of the Father and you will see me riding in the clouds. Well, where's Caiaphas going to be? Caiaphas is going to be in hell and at some later date in hell, Caiaphas, this is where you're going to see it from. That's the testimony. Isn't this magnificent? All of this is embedded here. And then he says, uh, then, then it says, Tearing his clothes. Now, in succession, there's just rapid fire violation of the Mishnaic laws. Boom, boom, boom. Right through. Tearing his clothes. Remember what we said. One of the rules was the high priest could not tear his clothes and give that show of emotion. Because 
they were to give fair judgment, no show of emotion. Boom, he tears his clothes, which is a show of emotion. The high priest said, what further need do we have? This is in, in Mark chapter 14, verse 68. What further need do we have of witnesses? Which is a really magnanimous thing. They don't have any witnesses. So for him to say, what further need do we have of witnesses? Uh, you don't have any You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? So remember, they are not, the judges are not allowed to bring the charge. They're not allowed to bring charge. That was a violation of one of the rules. So he, he, he's, he continues to break rules. So he breaks law number 14. He's with the condemnation. He can't bring a charge and he can't bring a charge based on someone's own testimony. Someone's own testimony is irrelevant in their bringing a charge in a capital offense because they might be suicidal or they might be trying to cover up for, for someone. So he's breaking another one of their rules. So these are their own rules. They go breaking one after another. So then they, they, it, it says, uh, uh, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Look at that. They all condemned him. Remember that, that, uh, uh, um, that we said that one of the rules was if the entire council is against him, he's automatically not guilty. Remember, that was one of the rules. Because they said no 23 to 71 Jewish men could agree on anything without collusion. So if they were all against him, boom, he should immediately be released. He's gone. And, uh, uh, but because, it, because specifically the law which we read last time said that, that if they were all against him, that he's automatically released. But here, again, they violated another one by doing this. And so, so uh, um, the other thing that they did is that no verdict, remember, was allowed to be announced. This was rule number 15. No verdict could be announced after dark. They couldn't announce the verdict. Verdict. And in fact, also between them finding him guilty and the verdict, here they say he's deserving of death. So they found him guilty and they pronounced the verdict, death penalty. There had to be a 24-hour space. Remember, that was one of the rules. They had to have a 24-hour space to let heads cool, let other witnesses come in between the time of there being condemnation and the verdict. And then they had to wait three days from the time of the verdict until the capital punishment was administered, which we know that they're not going to wait for that either. So this quick acclamation that they all started claiming that he's guilty, this was again a violation. Remember one of the rules was they had to take it by individual account, starting with the youngest, so that the youngest would not be influenced by the older. But here they're just all shouting it out. Boom, it should have ended the trial right there because they didn't take it starting with the youngest. They're violating their own rules. And then it says, and they all condemned him to be deserving of death. And there's also another rule. It's beyond the rules that I gave you last time. This is rule number 22 that they violated. No trial was permitted on the eve of the Sabbath or... or uh, um, or on the eve of a feast day. So not on the eve of a Sabbath or a feast day. So this is on the eve of, the, of a feast day. They're not allowed to do this. So it was another violation. 
So then it says, some people began to spit at him and to blindfold him and to beat him with their fists and say to him, prophesy. And the officers received him with slaps in the face. Matthew says, then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who, who is the one who hit you? And uh, 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 Luke says it this way. Now the men who were holding Jesus, this is in, in Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him, and they blindfolded him and were asking him, saying, prophesy, who is the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. So there are several rules concerning uh, uh concerning hitting people. Remember, now they violated another one of the rules, which was the judges had to be merciful. And, they, uh, and there was another rule that said there could be no beatings or scourging in uh, uh, coming before a capital punishment. They were not allowed to do this, so they're violating all of these rules. Now they, they, they have another one. This, this is really interesting. If a person hits another person with a fist, this is in the Masonic Law, if a, one person hits another person with their fist, it's punishable by four denarii. denarii four, a denarius is a, four, is a day's wage. So four days' wage of a worker's man's wage was the penalty for hitting someone with a fist. But get this, if you hit someone with an open hand, a slap, it's more of a disgrace, and it's 200 denarii, 200 days' wage a lot of money. 200 days wage of a worker's wage. But if you spit in someone's face, that is even more so of a disgrace and that is 400 denarii penalty. So you just have this massive amount of rule violations of the Mishnaic law, the very thing that they're upset with Jesus about. And now they, they, they condemn him to death. So what I want to do is I want to, want to start now and just think about what is the lesson for us in all of this. So we see this great injustice. And last time we talked about injustice. We had seen this in the garden. And what should be our response? But you see that there is this tremendous hatred for Jesus. Jesus said, He who hates me hates my Father also. So if one hates Jesus, they hate his Father also. That is true. But, but uh, um, look at the response that God calls us to. So whatever you go through in life, if you feel that you've been treated unjustly, if you feel that there's been some, some injustice done in your life, just remember what Jesus has gone through. I want you to turn to Romans. I want you to turn to Romans. We're going to close with this verse. And we're going to turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Why was it that they were so upset with Jesus? What made them hate Jesus so much? And we read in the Scriptures, there's several passages in the Scriptures, but what we read is that they hated Jesus because after the death of Lazarus, and we read all this, after the death of Lazarus, it says many people were coming to Him. And the leaders said, what are we doing? If he continues like this, all people will follow him and we will lose our position. They were afraid of losing their position because Jesus was getting all the following. Jesus was getting all of this following. So there's multiple scriptures that talk about how when Jesus, in the end like this, in the end when Jesus w w was 
in the end of his ministry, I mean, so many people were coming to him that they were questioning whether they could even sustain their own position. Let me give you an example of this, of, of say, something that you might have seen or heard. You know, sometimes a church might come into town and just grows hugely. And there can be this feeling among other churches, like, what's going on there? And they will start saying negative things about that really growing church. Like, oh, they're just into sensationalism. They're just into entertainment. Uh, or, you, you know, there's, there's, there's this lot of Holy Spirit stuff that's just not right. You know, lots of claims that will go on. And this is not reserved to just churches. I don't know if you've ever sensed that sometimes there can be competition between campus groups. Now, what I really am glad about that it, at, at Rice is that the campus groups actually get along pretty well. And I know that because I, I, I know many of them, so it's, you're really in a good atmosphere. But a lot of times on campuses, there can be a lot of competition between Christian campus groups. So what should be our response when somebody else, somebody else gets the accolades, when somebody else is excelling, when somebody else is doing... I mean, one of the things is you can do is you can look at it and say, what are you guys doing right? What's happening here that so many people are excited about this? So what I do is I go and I check out this group. If I hear this group is really growing rapidly, I want to know about it. So I'll go and meet with the leadership. And generally, once I meet with the leadership, I can get a pretty good idea why. Because there's people here that really love God and are preaching the things of God. So behind it is not a bunch of hocus pocus and entertainment. There's a person or two or three in that group that really love the Lord and are praying <clears throat> that God would do a great thing in people's lives. And what happens? People come. So we learn from that and we say, hey, you know, can I come alongside you? you know, what can we do to do the same thing? And sometimes I'll meet young men on campus who are part of a campus group and I'll say, you know, you're really a dynamic guy. You love the Lord. I want to learn from you. Tell me, how do you do this? So what are you talking about? Tell me, how is it that you disciple people? How is it that you, what do you call upon people? How do you do this? And I'll go and, and, and uh, incognito, I'll just show up there and sit in the back and just check out their group. Not because I want to critique it in a bad way. I want to see what are they doing right. I don't waste my time with going to the groups that aren't doing well. I want to go to the groups that do well and see what are they doing. This should be our response. So in Romans chapter 12, verse, verse 15, it says, Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Um, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. When you see your neighbor succeed, rejoice with them to the same extent that you would rejoice if you had received what they received. And so I, I, I get in this habit. When I see one of my colleagues win some big award, and I didn't win it, they won it. What I do is I, I either write them a note or I, I take the clipping and I paste it into the email and then under the clipping which shows the award they won and this and that, I say, congratulations, I rejoice with you. I rejoice and I partake in this joy with you. Great job. I want to congratulate them. And what it does is it takes this whole feeling of what could be an envious situation and it turns it around and says, good job, I am going to rejoice with you. The Bible says, rejoice with those who rejoice. You, there will come a time when people around you 
are going to receive these big awards. Don't just keep quiet about it. Go and congratulate them. Go and make a purpose of writing them a little letter. Sometimes I see this great publication in nature by somebody I know. And I will write them a letter. I said, I read this paper of yours. Great job. Beautiful paper. I wish I had thought of that. You know, and, and, and uh, um, you rejoice with them. This is how you handle this. Because with these Pharisees, the point that they had come to, you see they are just frothing, breathing out all these venom. Remember, these men didn't go into ministry intending to kill people. What brings a man or a woman from a place like that to a place where they want to see somebody die? Remember, we're really no different than they are. And we, the, the envy in our own hearts testifies to the truth that we are no different than they are. We have to take specific strides to rejoice with those who rejoice. Somebody's doing well, say, what are you doing that's going right? Imagine if somebody said, you know, I'm a Pharisee, I'm on the Sanhedrin, and we are amazed at your ministry. All these people are coming to you. How do you do it, Jesus? You know, he would have, you know, asked them some question, and you know, tried to lead them around to an understanding. And then they could have said, do you mind if I follow along with you for a little while and, and just get to learn this? I mean, Jesus would have been really welcoming. So this is what we want to learn to do. We want to learn to rejoice with those who rejoice so that we don't fall into this trap of wanting to kill the people who are doing well. Let's pray. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for the truth of it. Lord, I pray for these young people that they would learn to rejoice with those who rejoice. That they wouldn't fall into this trap of becoming envious to the point of frothing and anger. Lord, I pray that You'd give them good and right hearts and right responses here. And Father, for those who are going through some injustice, Lord, I pray that they would see this and realize that our Lord has gone through this and He knows their pain. Lord, I pray for Your grace on these young people. Call them forth, O Lord. Do a great work in their lives and let them walk in the ways of our Lord Jesus. Lord, give them a love for the Scriptures, I pray, for the glory of God. Amen.